So already, poor diet is costing healthcare systems globally trillions of dollars. Not billions, trillions. In America, it's 3.2 trillion. These things can be changed, not through medicine, but through food. Welcome back to the Wab Chat podcast, a podcast from White and Black Limited. My name is Sam Ridgway, and I suppose you could call this season two of the podcast. We've had a bit of a break, but we are back. We've got loads of brilliant guests, some really insightful conversation with guests who are doing game-changing, innovative things in their industries, and none more so than my guest today. Leo Campbell is co-founder of Modern Baker, and Modern Baker is seen by many as the UK's first truly healthy bakery and is behind the recently launched healthy bread brand Superloaf. And as you will hear, the ultimate aim for Leo and his team at Modern Baker is to democratise healthy baking for the common good. And in this episode, Leo talks to us about how Modern Baker's key vision is to become an impact unicorn, that is, to have a positive impact on 1 billion people by 2028. And Modern Baker has spent really the last six years in what Leo calls stealth stage, which has been a huge R&D phase with really significant funding from the UK government, Innovate UK, and they've literally just won their sixth grant in a row from the government, which we think is is unprecedented. And this R&D phase has been spent looking at and developing the ingredients, the, the nutrients that goes into our food. And this phase is, is now transitioning really for Modern Baker into what Leo calls scale-up mode. So product launches, as we've seen recently with Superloaf launching in MS, and us really beginning to see Modern Baker products on our shelves. And Leo and I really went deep into things in this conversation. We talk about how what Modern Baker is doing is actually so much more than just addressing nutrition. Leo explains to me how the technology Modern Baker is working on can be rolled out to smaller, less affluent communities. It's fairly low tech. And in that sense, it is working to address the gap between wealth and health and how actually a big part of the technology's design can use food waste and address sustainability issues simultaneously. So there's really just so much to what the Modern Baker is doing. And we go on to talk about the real purpose and drive behind Modern Baker, why Leo and his partner Melissa first set out on this very personal journey. And Leo makes the point that they're really only just starting this journey. Modern Baker is working on more partnerships with M&S and other supermarkets, both here in the UK and in Europe. It's working on partnerships with the NHS and is looking to roll out more products such as breakfast cereals, pastas, yogurts across those supermarkets and partnerships. So a really, really exciting future for Modern Baker. And we got to chat to Leo really just as this next stage of growth is about to take off. So with no more from me, I'll hand over to Leo who begins this conversation by explaining a bit about Modern Baker's product, Superloaf specifically what's in it, the science behind it, and what happens when we eat it. When you eat Superloaf, what, what is happening is that, first of all, the refined carbohydrates that are in any loaf of bread, uh, whether it's stone ground or not, they're still refined carbohydrates. The, the glucose impact on your body is massively dampened by uh, in Superloaf through the ingredients that we have in Superloaf that we've integrated in, been really hard to incorporate, but we've done it. 
that also affects the uh, fructose absorption, which is something that most people just brush off, you know, fructose. Well, it's not really about that. It's about glucose. Absolutely not. You know, it gets metabolized through the liver. So it's a completely different mechanism to glucose, but we modulate that as well. We also affect how the fats are absorbed. This is all in the small intestine, you know, the 90 minute journey through the small intestine, where we completely modulate all of that. Fewer calories that are absorbed into the body at the same time. And then the second part of what we deliver. So a lot of that you could call is offsetting. So if you're eating something that is spiky, not very good for you, we can modulate that. We offset the negative impact of that. Then the second part of it is that when you enter the large intestine, which is where the gut microbiome is, which is the chemical factory that stocks the pharmacy shelves of your immune system, uh, you know, as a result of 200 million years of mammalian evolution, it is unbelievable what happens there. But almost all foods that we eat have no, very little or no impact on the gut microbiome. So insoluble fiber, which is the vast amount of fiber that you find in processed foods, even the quality of that is degraded to the point that it's almost has zero impact. But secondly, insoluble fiber is about clearing you out. It's what we used to call roughage. It doesn't talk to your gut microbiome and that everybody's in denial of that. Everybody says, well, fiber's fiber. It absolutely isn't. So we, we get viscous and fermentable fibers from hard to use ingredient, plant ingredients, as well as combining them with bioactive compounds. So the sorts of things you would find in fruit and vegetable and whole grains, because they're present in the food, they are exactly what your gut microbiome is crying out for. And so we activate your gut microbiome. So the short chain fatty acids, the chemicals that then enter your bloodstream and talk to your brain, your lungs, you, you know, your, your skeleton, your, you know, the, the, the whole of your body, your skin, everything like that are actually activated and underway. And then how we get there along the way is we amplify all of the, those vital parts that we put into food through targeted fermentation. So when we give all of those ingredients, um, a blast of fermentation, targeted fermentation, we amplify their volume and you know, qualitatively and quantitatively, we amplify them. And that is just the stepping stone for where we see precision fermentation kicking in. And we are starting to work on a pathway to precision fermentation now. And the best thing of all, the body doesn't care. So if you think that the two key things we add are bioactive compounds, optimized fibers, and then we ferment them. But if you think that the body doesn't care where those bioactive compounds comes from, whether it's from a banana or a beetroot, or if it could get it from a cardboard box, it wouldn't care. If you've got bioactive compounds, that's a big plus. Same with your optimized fibers. So what we're now being able to do is to kind of reverse engineer the foods from what your body needs out to what's available. And that, of course, that opens up the whole world of food waste to us. 
So, so much of the byproducts of the food industry are just going to animal feed. I mean, nothing wrong with that, but, but we can repurpose them into our ingredient mix, our, you know, our, our nutrient, we call it alternative nutrition, alt nutrition is the phrase we've coined that can all come from, it can, all of it can come from, uh, repurposed, uh, sorry, food waste streams wow. down the line. And, and it gets better than that, because if you think about it, if you can, if you can create this nutrition from food waste yeah, and it can happen in smaller communities anywhere in the world, it doesn't have to come from five big global manufacturers or, you know, or of, of ingredients who sort of command the whole of the world's supply of all of these things, like the oil companies do. It can come from local communities. It can be, it's all low tech. Even, by the way, even precision fermentation is low tech. There's nothing, you just need a bioreactor. You don't need, you know, and the bacteria to drop into it. It's not, we're not talking about having to build, you know, trillion dollar uh, plants around the world to make this happen or change agriculture. So, yeah. There's a real revolution in all of yeah, it. There's so much in there. There's so many strands to it. And you just talking about food waste there. And then also smaller communities, you're, you're addressing this, this health crisis that we're seeing through what is in there, but you're also, you've also got this, um, food waste, uh, sustainability and environmental strand, if you like, in, in, in the future with with using that food waste for the, for the first purpose, but you've all, you're also at the same time, you've got this, um, this rebalancing of, of health and wealth historically, you know, health is health is there if you can afford it and it's, is available if you can afford it, but it sounds like there as, as well with, with it being low yeah. tech working in smaller communities, the you nation of, of proper nutrition, yeah. right? So what you touched on there is you've got, so what we, what we're working on is alternative nutrition, sustainability, uh, i.e. using food waste, and what everybody calls food security, which means that local communities or countries can look after themselves. They're not reliant on further afield. And that is all leading towards what you were touching on again there, which is about democratizing uh, nutrition and health. So I think the phrase that you're picking up on is that I forget who it was. I think it was Hippocrates who said the greatest wealth is health. And of course, what's happened in modern society is that actually the wealthier you are, the healthier you are in the moment. Yeah. That's flipped. And that is so wrong. It should not be the right of the wealthy to be healthy. And that is precisely what's happened. And that's precisely at the heart that the call I've just come off is with an NHS hospital to do a pilot scheme. And what we're looking at there is that it's a children's hospital. They don't just feed the children. Their job is to educate the children and their families. And by the way, they feed 77% of the families of the children get wow. them where they're in hospital as well. Their remit is to educate them as well. And so that is where all of this comes into it. And they're in a part of the country where I forget the phrase they use, but it was really chilling. I can't remember what it was. I can't find my notes here about how they described the poverty in that part of the country. And that's how all of these things come together and are 
need to become single-mindedly part of a single pathway forward that is based around, well, we think it has to be based around nutrition and then these other things feed off it. They cannot start in one of those other areas and then somehow incorporate nutrition. It's never going to work. Work. So poor diet is one of humanity's greatest challenges right now, is every bit alongside climate change. And at the heart of poor diet is the lack of nutrition in ultra-processed foods. So if we, we're going to have to feed 10 billion people by 2050, there is no way we can do that without having all the brilliant things the food industry have developed over the last 50, 100 years. So we have to work with them, but we need to bring nutrition into, we need to repurpose the food industry into being brilliant, a brilliant nutrition machine for the human race. And what that can then do is touch all of these other really important things. But we think it's central to climate change. It's central to food security. It's central to healthcare system. So already, poor diet is costing healthcare systems globally trillions of dollars. Not billions, trillions. In America, it's 3.2 trillion that poor diet is impacting. This is a socioeconomic cost. You know, diabetes is something like 2 trillion of that, 3.2. I mean, you know, and these things can be changed, not through medicine, but through food, through pharmaceuticals. This whole Wegovy and Azempic revolution has just turned the company behind it into Europe's most valuable company because they've made a jab that can make people less hungry and it only lasts for a couple of years. You have to stop. And it has a lot of side effects for people. This is just a car crash that society has created to try and solve a problem that shouldn't be solved that way. There are much easier, better ways of solving it, but there's too much. The motivation of private sector, of industry, of uh, consumerism, the motivations are wrong. And that's the problem. They have no purpose. Whatever they say, compared to, for example, for ours and other people in the same area as us, it's a joke. Mm. Uh, so we need to rethink all of this. And for what it's worth, I'll stop there by telling you that the, our latest project funded by the government, we've called Project Rethink. Mm -hmm. There you go. The perfect, the perfect name, I think. And it's strikes me that it's so novel to be addressing all of those those strands that you've just spoken about there leo in 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 one go really and in different ways but in one go and there's this company's doing great things in food waste in nutrition in poverty wherever it might be but i certainly have have not seen something that ties those things together so tightly and so well with that is that is that's seemingly so future-proofed as well um and i think that's where what you're doing is is so exciting and you talk about it you know it exploding in the next few years and you can absolutely see why why it can and and why why we are very hopeful that it will that's a point i'm interested in i've, I've heard you in other interviews and i've read um and you, we just were talking offline and you were talking about being in stealth stage almost yeah. before you launched. And it, it sounds sort of 
military-esque, but I don't think it is. Maybe, maybe you could just expand a bit on, on, on what that means and where you are now. Yeah, I mean, uh, our current, where we are currently as a, as a product, as a company, and our vision has taken a lot of research and development to get there. I think when we started this journey, we had no idea where we'd end up. We set out, we always said about democratizing healthy baking because we realized that early on, from early on, the bakery was probably the least healthy food category because it's the UK and the West's staple food. And we decided we wanted to do something about it. We thought initially that the platform technology of fermentation was probably where it all sat in terms of adding nutrition and making it less of a negative product in people's lives. But inevitably we uncovered all sorts of other things along the way. And that's why it has become a six year journey. But each time our horizons expanded, it meant that we, that we weren't going to launch the product we were about to launch. And inevitably, therefore, we've kept most of what we've been up to or kept the lid on everything. Uh, hence the stealth, the stealth mode, the phase that we've been through is we've been very reticent to share what we've been up to until we are ready with the product. A, because you get judged by what your public statements are or your product range. And B, because to be honest, we're at the cutting edge of nutritional innovation here and learning things all the time. We're a tiny company and we keep being advised to be very cautious about how widely we share that. You can listen to that. I'm really interested though, Leo, in, in the purpose of, of this and, and, and why you're doing what you're doing, why you stay in stealth mode for, for six years and keep a lid on a product and, and work through and have that, that patience and that motivation. And, and you, you describe yourselves, I think I'm as, as a purpose-driven business, not an artisanal business as, as one might ordinarily expect with, with the kind of product that you're, you're currently producing. You're disruptors, I suppose, in, in what is a very well-established industry. But I, I wondered if, if you can take some time to, to explain to, to us what really the purpose is and how that purpose came about. And for some context, I guess, I, I know You've spoken before about wealth versus health, your role as modern baker in the in the hospital bed crisis, the the idea of food as medicine, and as much as there's a lot of that out there now, you know, you look at the stuff on gut health and protein, the the, the products out there that are targeted at health and well being, and and that's kind of exploded after the, over the last few years, I suppose. But perhaps companies are are making these product products having pivoted slightly their their marketing and, and product development to allow for this kind of thing to allow them to make the new nut butter or, or whatever it is because that's what they need to do to to stay relevant almost or, or to keep up to speed but to me it, it seems at least the, the extent to which you guys take that that the need for wealth and health to be rebalanced the the role food has to play in the hospital bed crisis is really your whole purpose is it's not just an aside it's not just a pivot it's not just a marketing message and making that your whole purpose i think is is still very novel so going back to my question can you talk to us about where that comes from where that purpose comes from and, and why you're taking this approach yeah sure funny enough the call i've just come off was with a, a large nhs hospital 
where we're about to do a pilot with Superloaf being taken on by the hospital. And what we're doing is trying to work, is working out how we can make that, uh, looking at all the metrics we're going to measure that will be a benefit to the NHS for switching from traditionally industrial bread to super loaf. And that's going to be really exciting. So it's interesting that you mentioned that, but the, yeah, I mean, purpose is what drives our business. I mean, the origin of how we are here. I think really the best way to frame it is that the, I would call it is the power of vulnerability. So I don't think that vulnerability is a weakness. I think it's a birthplace of real innovation and change. So the two things that happened were that, um, I just met Melissa, my co-founder and almost immediately she was diagnosed with an aggressive form of breast cancer. And we were sitting on a chemo ward, obviously with Melissa receiving treatment and into the ward came the kind of refreshments trolley loaded with coconut sodas, chocolate bars, crisps and everything like that. Just as Melissa was learning the connection between cancer and refined sugars, carbohydrates, and things like that. And she just looked at me and said, I don't know what your policy is on swearing, but I won't WTF. And it was kind of from that moment, we thought, we just felt so strongly about this, that we needed to do something about this if we could. So we thought long and hard about what that could be and alighted on the fact that the industrial loaf is the staple food of this country and most of the Western world. So we thought we needed to get into bakery and right from the start, our purpose was about democratizing. We called it healthy bakery. At the same time as Melissa was going through all of that, I had, um, I, I, I was going through a, a, a breakdown and, um, I'd lost a nine-year-old child. Suddenly it precipitated a complete family breakdown and it was just very hard to deal with everything. And I came from a, a, a deep place of vulnerability, all of that. But I, but I'm absolutely convinced it was a convergence of Melissa's terrible circumstances that she was dealing with and the place that I was in that somehow allowed us to develop the sense of purpose. It was almost like giving something back. I don't know what it was, but that is what cemented everything that underpins our purpose now and what everything has grown into. And yes, you're right. The, this whole notion that food can be medicine was always central to what we believed from the outset. I mean, quite literally when Melissa was having chemo, we knew, she knew that the better her nutrition was in her body, the more effective the medication would be, and also the more effective her healing would be as well. And her side effects, there was a, so much evidence and it was evidenced in Melissa too. So yeah, the, the wider thing of food as medicine was, was born from all of that too. And, you know, I'd recommend to anybody who is in a place of vulnerability that if they look hard, they may well find their purpose in life coming from that. I mean, it's, it's quite common actually, but that's absolutely where we started from. It's a, it's a remarkable story, really, Leo, and something so significant to to come out of that tragedy and adversity is 
is remarkable. I've you, you mentioned there that, that um, it's quite common for for purpose to be found in that, and you know, I've I've spoken to numerous people on on this podcast that have said very similar that have have left jobs or 20, 20 year careers um, because of that to to then start something or whose perspectives have been flipped upside down because of of personal circumstances and something that's happened and they've then gone on to to do what they've done so you're right it's a very it's a very common thing um and i want to stick on your purpose if, if that's okay and and i was thinking about this in the bigger picture and and there is so much out there um on, on diet and health and nutrition and what you should and shouldn't be eating and when you should and shouldn't be eating and the gut and the heart and, and blood pressure and although um as you've just described that is so central to what you're doing I, I didn't want to get too much into it in terms of the science and the technicality, A, because I'd be completely out of my depth talking about it. But more importantly, I think, because it it strikes me that you, a, a modern baker, are unique in that you're talking about this stuff, but you're not just writing books or doing podcasts or launching an app. You are, you're quite literally shaping your business around it, around the science and the technology but you're actually going out there and and implementing and, and trying to to bring about real change at, at manufacturing level, at production level. And that's why I wanted to focus on, on this purpose and, and staying on it. I found myself asking this to, to a lot of, of people on this podcast. And like I mentioned, we've, I've had similar discussions, but as a business leader and, and an entrepreneur yourself, how do you ensure that that, that purpose, that vision, is kept front and center that all the time, but especially in times of significant transition or growth as, as perhaps you're, you're targeting or looking to move, move towards, how do you ensure that it, it isn't diluted somewhat when that, when that growth may, may come? How, how do you do that? How do you maintain it? Well, I think first of all, it's about the team that's, that you're working with, because if everybody in the team believes in the purpose as much as you do, then life becomes so much easier to keep it on track. If you just have one person in your team who's a little bit cynical or, you know, who, who just, who, who aren't on the same page as you, it can be unbelievably disruptive. And along the way, we have had a lot of changes within the team to the point that now we're actually quite a small team, but we can think for each other. And that is, that is what keeps purpose at the heart of it. Secondly, as you say, when you're growing and you get subjected to the external forces that aren't always aligned with yours, that is where you just have to be adaptable. And, um, and that comes back to the team as well, as far as I'm concerned. So there are people who can live with uncertainty and can not feel uncomfortable when you don't know exactly what's going to happen next and what happens after that. But you have faith that somehow you'll work a way through it. And, you know, thank goodness the world isn't purely full of people who are willing to take risks like that because the world wouldn't go round if it were for that. But we have to have people like that in our team who don't get suddenly feel uncomfortable. So when we're talking to a manufacturer and they say, oh, we can't put that product through our, or that ingredient through our production line, not because they can't, 
but because in India, where that product has grown, there's been a new report suggesting that it's grown near sesame in some parts, and therefore it's a potential allergen. And all of a sudden, that ingredient has to be removed, and there's nothing you can do about it. You then have to backfill with other things and compromise. Uh, there are not many teams who can can work around that effectively or could even cope with that. And so I would say it comes back to team and, and belief. And that, that example there is obviously a, a long way down the line from when you started, but presumably you needed that right at the start as well. I mean, you, you were setting out on this on this journey, you had your, your reasoning, but I suppose the, the first step, you don't exactly know where, where you're moving, do you? I mean, or, or did you, at the start, did you think actually we're going to, we are going to launch with, in M&S with, with Hovis, was that always a target or actually was it, we're not quite sure, we, we know the purpose and that drives us, but we're going to. I think there are different types of entrepreneurs, but certainly the, the type that, I don't know, that we're based on entrepreneurship we're based on is that um uh no you don't know where you're going to end up you haven't a clue um you can have dreams you can um uh, you can envision things it never turns out the way you expect but the art along the way is the ability to pivot when you need to and pivoting isn't always just about um uh seeing a new horizon um, but but it, it is about business models, about being realistic. It's about then adapting, and then often you know you you find yourself in an avenue that is much more productive than you ever imagined. So it's it's having the bravery to just go with where things are opening up in front of you, and just having faith that you'll always make something work. Funny if I remember when we moved into this building here, which is a vast converted sort of loft style. Uh, operation on an industrial estate. It was a really big decision. Should we take this on and spend a lot of money on it? And I remember Melissa standing there saying, look, let's just do it. We'll make it work. You know, and that, so we had no idea how to make it work. We knew, had no idea what we would turn it into or how, but we did, we made it work. And I think that's really what this is, you know, this is all about that keeps you rolling and adapting all the time. I'm not yes. sure if that is your question, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, completely, completely. And again, I, I don't want to draw parallels continually, but I was chatting to um, Tess Taylor, who founded uh, what is called Tap Social Movement in, right. in Oxford. Yeah, and and um, she was talking similarly about they now have a big bakery uh, as well, um, doing very different things to you. Don't worry, um, but um, she was talking about how that spawned out out of lockdown, and it was born from selling uh, takeaway coffee and, and pastries when they could only do it from a takeaway horse box and actually seeing the opportunity there and realizing that, that the supply, the demand was there and that they could supply it themselves. So they've, they've got this huge bakery now down, down just outside of Oxford and that's come out of just being flexible and, and saying, actually, there could be opportunity there. It's, it's not necessarily what we were picturing, but you know, we've, we've got the means and, and the resources to go after it. So, so let's do it. So. Yeah, it, it completely resonates and it's, it's it's a really interesting point. I I wanted to come back, Leo, and it's maybe slightly unfair because I, I didn't prep you, but again, people is something that comes up often. And then you, you, you talk about getting the right people around you. How 
how do you do that? Is that is that all in practical recruitment process? Is that about building relationship? How do you how do you get that team? How have you got your team now to to that point? Well, whenever we advertise for a role, we get we get inundated with people who want to change their lives. They quickly recognise us, and in many ways, you know, when I think about some of our key people. Uh, they have literally turned up and said, I don't care what I do. I want to work for you. I'm happy to halve my salary. You know, I'm a technology consultant at Accenture or whatever, but I want to come and join your team. And it's that passion that you make decisions on. It's not people's experience. None of us are scientists. None of us have been involved in the food industry before. It's what drives us is our passion for a bigger, wider goal. Fair to say that we don't regard ourselves in the food industry. We regard ourselves as an, uh, our, our widget is nutrition. What we do is nutrition innovation. Our medium happens to be food. And, and the other dimension to that is something we learned fairly quickly on is because it's so hard to find the right person to fill a role. We defaulted quite early on to being very good at outsourcing what we needed. And that proved very useful. And it's very much part of our DNA now. We're a small compact team who are very good at uh, getting what we need externally. So for example, all of our science is outsourced. I mean, we're, uh, as of, we're, we're back into three labs as of this month, all very different labs. We've worked with them all before on, on a new one year project. And we can come back to that because actually that's funded by the government. So we've just won a 450,000 pound grant from the government to transfer our food technology from bakery into other core staple foods such as breakfast cereal pasta ready meals and are we even working with yogurt at the moment as well but but that's all outsourced and and that's the point that is another way of not having to hire uh, find a difficult hire and then you get good at it and then you realize that when you outsource you might have five people working on that specific area reporting into you they're all specialists you aren't and that is an advantage because you can then you can frame and work out the right questions to ask and i would say that's something we're very good at we we can direct teams of scientists in a certain direction without alienating them or you know making them feel that you know that we we're too dominant or anything like that so yeah, so you know, it's a combination. I keep the team small and learn how to outsource. Mm. And and probably something that's quite regularly overlooked, actually, that that outsourcing factor. And when it's done right, like you say, it can be so effective. So it's a really good point. Um, I'm I'm interested, Leo, in what you've been what you've been doing recently. And I mentioned that um, Superloaf launched was it back in March? I think of, of this year. Um, back in a year, April, and and. I'm interested in in how that ties in with your purpose, actually. So, launching in M&S Anacardo, partnering with Hovis, huge household name. To the to the layman, I suppose there's there's an element there. That I, I want to ask how that's scaling, and how that mass production, whether that's the right term, make it harder to maintain that purpose that you've just described? I mean, does it make it harder to maintain in any way? Or actually does it, and, and does it run the risk of, of um, 
moving in moving towards that kind of that big food area or do you actually do you need to look for for that and and you need to look for collaboration with big companies with with big food can you talk talk to us about that sure i mean our mission as a company is to actually let's call it i think it's more of a vision is to become what we call an impact unicorn by 2028 and the definition of that is having a positive impact on a billion people and uh, and you know that vision sits behind every decision we take as a company it's our north star and so there is no way that we will be able to impact a billion people if we have a bakery in a locality producing high quality artisanal healthy bread the only way we are going to have any impact on this terrible problem that faces society which is poor diet is by working with the food industry not against them it is inconceivable that society is going to go back to allotments making bread at home and taking your own lunch into work every day is also inconceivable that the food industry is going to be overturned by a completely new industry and greenfield operations around the world to replace ultra-processed food. That's never going to happen. So what we are doing is working with big food, helping them fix the problem. So turning ultra-processed foods into foods with positive nutrition. We've done that with Superloaf. And to do that, we've had to make these huge breakthroughs in terms of processing our ingredients. So we spent a long time working out how to put an, a nutrient-dense loaf through high-speed machinery, that make the, the same machinery that makes industrial bread. Uh, and we eventually got there. And it took a lot of, um, well, several key breakthroughs that have, as our partner told us when it came out of the other end, that we've defied gravity. You know, nobody has ever been able to put our, a product like ours through the, the, the bakery machinery that drives the world's industrial bakery. Oh, it's massive. Oh, yeah. We able to do that. So it's kind of the opposite to the question you asked me. We want to work with these big organizations. Sure, we have to compromise. When we meet the machinery, we realize that certain things can and can't happen. But that's the point about having a good team. You are able to work around that. So the person who's on the on-pack information and the health claims and nutrition claims can work with that. The person who's on the technical side who has to suddenly work with a different ingredient can cope with that. Commercially, from my perspective, again, you know, I have to be able to work out what the implications of that from a commercial point of view are and everything like that. But no, I mean, it's completely in our sights. So with our new Innovate UK funded project, converting all of our technologies into other food categories, which incidentally is our sixth successive Innovate UK government funding win that's basically wow. behind our business. We think it's unprecedented in a SME to have had six wins, especially, particularly in the food sector. Yeah, it's huge. Although we're not in food, we're in nutrition. But our, our business model is that in every case, when we make breakfast cereal, when we make pasta, we will have a big international 
uh, industry strategic partner partnering us on that. So that it will be big food okay. and it will yeah. be big supermarkets and it will be uh, making it as cheaply as we can. But but not as we as we currently know it. Um, as you currently know it, no. So, so that, and the the capability is there, and, and you've you've proven that. You talk about the partnerships. Is are uh, manufacturers or partners re receptive to this? Is there is there resistance there? How, how have you found that massive resistance? Really? Okay. So the food industry does not like what we're doing. They don't. You know, I'm talking very generally and generalizing. They don't like change, and also, uh, dare I say it, there's a massive lack of imagination going on within that world. Probably decades of whatever that has led them there. The other real problem is the nutrient profiling model that is uh, that, that sits at the heart of every country's nutritional guidelines is wrong. It's completely broken. What sits behind HFSS orthodoxy of you know the three macronutrients plus salt and offset by fiber and everything is so broken that what it's doing is when people comply with it and try and get green traffic lights more often than not they're actually creating products that are less healthy than they had on the shelves before everybody's aware of it but the food industry doesn't want to acknowledge that however there is a real bright spot here which is all the retailers all the retailers multiple retailers without exception do want change so how we've been able to broach that problem is to go to a retailer in this case in our case MS have been fantastic all the food leadership team the sort of vision of the company has very quickly adapted to where we are in terms of what we've developed and of course that makes a, a completely different slant on how the industry partner reacts when MS say we want that product on our shelves so that's how we've unlocked it and that's how we will continue going forwards on that basis and incidentally all of the retailers are quick to acknowledge that the nutrient profiling model hfss orthodoxy as we call it is wrong and that we need products that live beyond that. None of the food manufacturers acknowledge that at all until they get forced into it. So we have a problem, but we found a way to undo it because we've convinced the retailers to instruct, you know, to, to liaise with the industry partners. And then when they see the light, all of a sudden they see the opportunities that come from this. And that is a working model that is working for us really well right now and that we're going to apply to the other food groups when we open them up. Yeah. That's just fascinating as well. It's um because it's it's case in point of what you were what you were talking about earlier. In having that that team around you and being able to to navigate the 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 problem ahead of you and being able to to pivot slightly and saying, okay, actually if we if we're going to the manufacturers, um and they're saying no. The retailers is the way forward, and that's exactly what you were you were talking about, and have been talking about, and and coming back to that team and that that central purpose. That is a so then, an out an outplaying of that. And that's partly why we've been six years in R and D. You know, figuring out all of those steps as well. It hasn't just been in the labs. 
it's also been talking to industry and the retailers to work out how we can go from end to end with all of this. Sorry, I'm Ted. No, no, not at all. I think it's um, it's a, a really fascinating point for me and, and something that um, I think will be for, for everyone listening. Um, that, that that impact unicorn and, and the idea of of helping one billion impacting one billion by by twenty twenty eight as your your vision if you like that I, I suppose whilst you need to um sell breads and cereals and, and yogurts in order to do that that's the idea of of impacting one um one billion is going to be prioritized over profit and 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 other more standard kpis i suppose for you guys just just in talking to you i i get that and i i understand that of course you know we need um more super loaves out there and we need more people to be buying it in order to be impacted by it so you see what i mean but um what what is in the the pipeline for you guys because you, you've mentioned the sixth um, consecutive grant you've mentioned other food areas where are we on that on that stage where so during next year we are likely to have multiple bakery products in multiple supermarkets in the uk they will be also they will start to go into other supermarkets in other countries as well separate to that we will be looking at a breakfast cereal so call it super breakfast whatever something like that <laughs> super pasta, uh, super ready meals. They're all, we, we, we've just kicked off, uh, early at the beginning of this month, the, uh, a 12 month program, uh, as I say, back in the labs to bring out these other products. And so I've ref referenced the fact that we've been in stealth mode. We're not anymore. We're in scale up mode and everything has completely changed. So it's now go, 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 go all the time about trying to work out the best way to make this happen. And we're getting fantastic support from the investment community as well. So we're now starting to talk to venture capital companies. A lot of them are backed, funnily enough, there are Innovate UK, who are the grant givers, people who have an approved list of impact venture capital companies and there are hybrid grants as well that that encompass both investment from a vc and and development money from innovate and they, these can be quite large sums of money that one can access quite quickly so all of that is on our horizon to happen over the next couple of quarters that then feed into all the things i described about different products relationships with industry partners and activity in other countries. If we get this right, and of course it'll never go according to our forecasts and plans exactly, but in theory, this could explode just massively quite quickly over the next two or three years. I mean, you know, that's our plan. That's mm. what we need to do. And we just need to be smart about who we partner with, where we take money from and, and keep focused on research and development as well as we come to finish i'm, I'm conscious of time leon i don't want to keep you but where where can people find it i mean we mentioned mns it is it, it's in mns isn't it the, the super loaf at the moment um people can go and get that and it's it's not expensive well it's more expensive than ultimately we'd like it but uh i mean think of tesla 
you know, I mean, it's pioneered EVs and it's still a premium brand because it has to, because if it, if it wasn't, it wouldn't have the research budgets to keep this thing rolling. So we're very much in that position. Yes. So super loafers available in most MSs, but I think really the message is we have only just started this journey. So we partnered with MS, who, as I say, have been fantastic as a partner. Uh, we'll be doing a lot more with them now, the NHS and things like that. So in a way, people will probably have to wait for the full impact of what we're up to, to properly affect their lives. But yes, sure. Please go out and buy Superloaf. I mean, the one, a lot of feedback we've had from consumers about Superloaf is that it seems to be a gateway product within the family. So kids like it. The family likes it. It cooks and toasts like normal bread. It makes a fantastic sandwich. It tastes great. But what it does is opens families up to trying more healthy stuff. They think, now I've got my bread sorted. Actually, it seems worthwhile trying other things. And had so many people who bought the loaf saying is actually, you know, my kids are now more willing to try other things. So my partner, um, we're already doing a lot of different things. And so maybe we can be, you know, the spark that gets something going for a whole family. I mean, that, that is exactly what we yeah, have business. Oh, 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 oh,